0: That was gothic music put out by the Victorian Albert Museum in 2003. And that song is a chamber song called Good Company. And here we are on to podcast number three. Podcasts in the time of COVID-19. I don't know about you guys, but this indoor life is getting a bit crazy. My children at the best of times tend to rack my brain, but I'm around them all the time now. And it's become truly crazy. Um, That said, bear with me if these things come out a little bit late. This one's going to be here today. It's Tuesday in the afternoon, as they should be. But the second one might take me a little bit longer now. And uh, throughout the quarter, I'm assuming that these things are going to come when they do. Uh, Not to worry, they will arrive. But uh, thanks for bearing with me and being patient. Today's podcast is Foundations and it refers both to the founding of Henry VII's financial institutions, his means for extracting money in England, but also in terms of foundations with dynasties, in terms of founding the Tudor dynasty, and as we'll see also, the Stuart dynasty. Queen Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain were not the only potential bankrollers for a journey of exploration to the quote-unquote new world. Indeed, prior to securing the Niña, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, prior to finding international financial backing for the expedition that would bring Europeans to the East Indies, and that would create a new era of exchange and equally tragedy, the Genoese explorer Christopher Columbus had looked elsewhere. He had even employed members of his family to help him find a financial backer. Christopher's brother, Bartholomew, who was himself an explorer, was eager to help, to help fund a mission that could potentially bring the family fame and, most importantly, fortune. The French court proved unreceptive, and Bartholomew reached England in 1489, just a few years after Henry's victory at Bosworth Field. Bartholomew's goal was to explain to Henry VII the vast potential of an expedition, and indeed of the wealth that could be obtained if he was to find a faster passageway to the East Indies. But a problem had met Bartholomew on his way to the English court, and that was English pirates, pirates who had captured him during his crossing of the English Channel. And so that by the time he reached the court, he was in no place to relay The full potential of Columbus's plans. And Columbus, for his part, was, meanwhile, achieving more traction. In Spain, the recently united crowns of Castile and Aragon, of Isabella and Ferdinand, were willing to give Columbus what he needed. The potential for finding a new passageway to India, in particular, was enticing. It meant Potentially, as Columbus thought, a much faster way to get spices that were outrageously valuable. Valuable for increasing the flavor of European food, which was at the time known to be rather bland. But also for preserving in terms of salt. Hugely important for keeping food for voyages and other means. And so Henry lost out on an investment. It just so happened to be an investment that would later serve to give Spain a vast overseas empire. But no one knew this at the time. And there would be other opportunities for Henry. Today we will outline how Henry VII laid the foundation for the Tudor dynasty. With his victory at Bosworth, Henry became the single greatest landowner in Britain since the Norman conquest of 1066. His vast land ownership owed in part to the successes of his predecessors, and in particular Edward IV, who had done much to build upon royal holdings by defeating his adversaries on the field of battle and confiscating what they had lost. And Henry was certain to follow in his path closely. For one, he continued to take lands from his opponents, and indeed keep those lands in royal hands, and this is important. Kings and queens could do with lands as they pleased. They could sell them, of course, which could give them a quick cash influx, or they could hold on to them in order to keep rents coming in. They could give them out as patronage. They could do a lot of things with them. They were their lands. Holding on to them was important. But more than this, he also retained a tight grip on his finances, not just in the sense that he could extract fees and great sums of money from rents, but that he could manage patronage, and he could grant titles, and he could help those seeking advancement. Monarchs could readily rely on ordinary revenue. And ordinary revenue was made up of customs duties, feudal duties, rents, and other things that brought in money on an annual basis. The other side of the equation, which we mentioned briefly the other day, was extraordinary revenue of grants made by Parliament in times of need, and especially of war. Rents and customs duties were the biggest money catchers in terms of ordinary revenue, and Henry paid close attention to customs on what was called tonnage and poundage. Which were the fees tacked on to the import and export of goods, of wool, of wine, of alum, of other things. As their name implied, it was done by weight. Taxes were determined by tonnage and poundage, thus, tonnage and poundage. Aside from taxes and rents, it soon became clear to Henry that there were other means for extracting money to augment what were already becoming impressive state coffers and especially impressive in light of the fact that he did not freely distribute land. Henry was, as King of England, also head of the law. And one means that he found for making great new amounts of money was bonds, by way of passing on indebtedness, and in particular of obliging his followers to adhere to particular rules, rules which, if broken, could lead to fines and fees and as Henry's reign progressed, he applied yet more and more pressure on the peerage, extracting from them all he could by way of bonds and fines for transgressions. Fines, even if small and specific, added up. Between 1502 and 1509, an astonishing two-thirds of the peerage owed some fines to the king. This was indeed ruled by fear and not by love. Old feudal practices were revived and applied. Keeping soldiers, or retaining knights, as is known, was reason for punishment, payable again with fees. And even the clothes that the nobility wore, their liveries, as they were known, soon became a worthwhile target. Those caught wearing the coats of arms of peers were fined in order to reinforce both their relationship and adherence to the king, deference, but also as a clever way to supplement the king's income. Henry's grip on finance, or more specifically on pathways to increasing his ordinary revenue, owed to his own brutal efficiency, but also to his ability to trust loyal servants. And two of Henry's most loyal and famous servants were Sir Epsom and Sir Dudley, Sir Richard Epsom and Sir Edmund Dudley. Epsom was potentially from a family of sieve-makers, thus low-born, and he would rise to become one of Henry's main administrators and collectors of taxes, and he would come to serve on the king's council learned in the law, the leading body set up for figuring out new ways to collect and account for taxes. Epsom would likewise become incredibly unpopular, seen as a leading instrument of the king's arbitrary taxation and as a nuisance to some of the most powerful figures in the realm, someone who was often called, in short, an upstart. Sir Edmund Dudley would be Henry's single most important minister, however, a leading advocate for the king's system of taxation, and likewise a member on the king's council learned in the law. He was made knight of the Shire on multiple occasions, and even speaker of the House of Commons at one point. Both men were efficient and indeed loyal, but they were so disliked that following Henry's death in April 1509, they were accused of treason and thus charged by attainder, and beheaded on Tower Hill. But more on that when it comes time to look at Henry VIII. Henry VII did have reason to be concerned during his reign. Even with his marriage to Elizabeth of York and the symbolic creation of the white and red Tudor Rose, and indeed with his successful production of legitimate heirs to the throne, there, wa- there were issues at hand, and the throne could still be challenged. One of this was the existing blood relations in England to both the houses of York and his own Lancaster. And these li- these lines could generate a number of legitimate claims to the throne, but most threatening of all were impostors. The most serious matter of an impostor arrived just six years into Henry's reign in 1491, when a claimant suggested he was Richard Plantagenet, the younger brother of Edward V and heir to Edward IV an heir who had apparently, as he claimed, escaped his capture in the Tower of London. The impostor was, in fact, Perkin Warbeck, a claimant to the throne of England who had convinced nearly all of Europe's leading houses that he was Edward IV's heir and Edward V's brother. Doing as much at the time mattered more on looks than anything else, It was a time, of course, before photography, before DNA testing, and his resemblance, as many noted, to Edward IV, was enough to convince many in Europe and in England that he was, in fact, the heir to the throne. Warbeck, for his part, bounced around between Ireland and France most of the time, and he remained a very serious threat to Henry so long as he lived. The threat proved so real that Henry amassed an army of 15,000 to cross the English Channel in 1492, at a time when it was known that Warbeck was hanging in the court of the King of France. He was eager to defeat the imposter once and for all, but war never materialized, and instead Warbeck was driven out of the court and sent on to Burgundy. He was, for the time, neutralized. And with his neutralization, Henry's concerns turned more to native treachery, and so that by the middle of the 1590s he was eagerly pursuing and persecuting powerful individuals suspected of opposing his rule, and in particular in the north where many Yorkists and supporters of Richard III remained. His concerns were such that he called upon Parliament, which passed the De Facto Act or the Treason Act of 1495. It was an act that built upon and added to common law, making it so that anyone fighting for the king could not be charged with treason by a future king, an attempt to maintain loyalty and clearly keep anyone from defecting to Perkin Warbeck. The de facto act came just in time, because Warbeck had by then found a new way in. In July 1495, He landed in Kent, where his supporters were defeated before the claimant himself could disembark from his ship. Fleeing, he went on to Ireland and then on to Scotland. He was thus in the north, and in the court of James IV of Scotland, he was greeted as a future King of England, received as Richard Plantagenet, and acknowledged to be the rightful heir to the throne in the south. Adding to his legitimacy when in Scotland was a marriage alliance to Lady Catherine Gordon, a well-respected member of a family that would keep ties between the two kingdoms, should he win, tight. A joint expedition south by both Warwick or Richard, if you will, and James IV, was executed but came to little. And soon English forces were mustered and on the march north to defeat James IV, and the claimant to the throne. While local support for Richard failed to materialize in the north and in the areas around York, it did instead appear in the southwest, in Cornwall, where droves were eager to support anyone who might oppose the king, and at least to offer an alternative to the harsh and arbitrary systems of taxation that he had imposed. As the forces of Cornwall marched east And the armies of the North and Scotland were defeated, both came to little. Loyalists to the king rose up in Kent and finally defeated the uprising from Cornwall. And with that defeat, Warbeck lost his best chance. He would be captured soon thereafter and executed in 1499. But execution was not. The way to destroy the pursuit of claimants or impostors. What had helped to destroy them rather were not armies, but instead marriages. The first of these marriages saw Spain linked to England with the betrothal of Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, to Henry's eldest son, Prince Arthur. The terms of the marriage had been secured years earlier with the March twenty-seventh. 1489 Treaty of Medina del Campo, a marriage alliance that was set for the, at the time, four-year-olds who would once become of age and at that time were to be wed. But more importantly for Henry at the time, of course, just a few years after Bosworth, was the fact that the marriage treaty came with a dowry of 200,000 gold crowns, a remarkably large sum of money that could be used for any number of things, potentially even bankrolling an army, should he be opposed. The ages of the two at marriage came about in 1501. Both were just 15. And this was a marriage that would have significant consequences in time, but also one that would see England backed by the emerging power of Spain. Arthur would die months after falling ill, not even six months after his marriage, and Catherine and his marriage would then receive a papal dispensation, and it was agreed that her betrothal would pass on to the new apparent heir, Henry, and later Henry VIII. Peace with Scotland also came by way of marriage, with Henry sending his daughter Margaret to James IV. The agreement of marriage came in January 1502, and was fittingly enough named the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. Thus ended 170 years of war with Scotland, and so began the bloodline that would circle back a century later, after the death of Henry VII's granddaughter, Elizabeth I. And so a dynasty, and by way, a second dynasty, were established. the Tudor and the Stuart lines had begun. Henry, at the time Duke of York and future Henry VIII, would be expected to come to the crown and would indeed eventually be wed to Catherine of Aragon. This was then the best means for stopping anyone from attempting to take Henry VII's throne, of establishing fitting marriage alliances, marriage alliances that could produce dowries, establish peace, and further provide military backing should it be needed. This is how a dynasty becomes started. But in the wake of Arthur's death, the king was also stricken. It was said that the news of Arthur passing caused him to collapse into tears, an unusual moment in which an otherwise somber and quiet king showed his emotions. And following Arthur's death was more tragedy. Elizabeth of York passed the following year while in childbirth. Henry for a time considered marrying the young Catherine of Aragon himself after the dispensation, a plan which came to nothing upon the death of Catherine's mother, Isabella it was, at the time, less desirable to have a marriage alliance with someone who lacked both of their royal parents. When seeking a new wife, Henry VII informed his ambassadors that he wanted one who looked like his former queen, and in just a matter of years, he would die of tuberculosis. But at that point, he would rejoin his wife, taking her side where he is to this day, in the chapel named after him, Henry the Seventh Chapel, an extension of Westminster Abbey. I, for one, visit his tomb often, if not simply because it is rather remarkable and beautiful because of the fluted carved ceilings, but I like to go because I like to pay a visit to the individual who established not one but two dynasties, dynasties that would last for the next two hundred years. Henry VII, I would like to add and end, did not smile often. Historians sometimes attribute this to his personality, to his severity, to his miserly pursuit of wealth. I like to think it's for another reason, and it's because his teeth were quite bad, and he was modest, and he didn't like to show his teeth. I think he's a dynamic king. He's a king who established, as I said, two dynasties. And I think he's worth looking at in greater detail. Not just as the grandfather of Elizabeth, but as the creator of the Tudor and Stuart lines. We'll have to get to his son next week. Next, we'll consider religion in England. The single most important guiding principle of most contemporaries' lives. Thank you.